welcome to another special edition of the Albany Law School Podcast. I'm Ben Myers, Assistant Director for Communications and Marketing here at Albany Law School. Today on this edition, we're dropping in on a presentation from our online graduate programs, Blockchain and Cryptocurrency, the Legal Framework and Future Trends. This was recorded on March 25th, so things may have changed between that presentation and today's date, but we'll leave all the introductions in the programming itself. Just a couple of reminders before we get to it. As always, albanylaw.edu slash coronavirus. Make sure you're up to date on everything happening on campus. And follow us on all the social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. And as always, if you like episodes of this podcast, you can listen to previous episodes by subscribing or going over to our SoundCloud account. Let's get over and find out more about blockchain and cryptocurrencies. Oh, good evening, or, or wherever wherever you uh, you happen to be. Uh, we're delighted wherever you are joining us from. Uh, my name is uh, Will Trevor. I am the Assistant Dean and Director of uh, Online Programs here at uh, Albany Law School. I'm delighted to welcome you to our Thursday webinar, Blockchain and Cryptocurrency, the Legal Framework and uh, Future Trends. Um, if you uh, want to find out a bit more about our programs, there's, give us an email, graduateadmissions at albanylaw.edu, or our number is 518-390-0261. Next slide, please. Now, our next event. Uh, we've been holding a number of events recently. Uh, we like to give you um, uh, events that are covering uh, relevant topics and uh, uh, also ones uh, that are that are interesting and have uh, relevant uh, and uh, expert panelists. Our next one uh, is going to be uh, on St. Patrick's Day, Wednesday, March the 17th. Time is one o'clock till uh, two o'clock uh, Eastern time. This one is going to be Pathways to the Future, Emerging Trends in Cybersecurity and Data Privacy Law and, uh, and Policy. Um, as with uh, all of these events of this type, it's a free one. Uh, bringing together a group of distinguished experts, uh, attorneys, thought leaders, uh, leaders in the field of cybersecurity and uh, and data privacy. So that, uh, that time and date again, March the 17th, 2021, uh, 1 p.m. to 2 p.m. And that's Eastern time and it'll be via Zoom. And uh, my colleague, Nicole, uh, has already posted a link a couple of times into chat for you. Next slide, please. So I just want to tell you about uh, some of our online programs. Um, we have a number of, uh, of uh, online graduate programs, 100% online, um, financial compliance and risk management, we, uh, we launched last year. Uh, our next start for this one, if, uh, if you're interested, we have six starts a year, two in, two in the spring, two in the summer, two in the fall, but our next one will be spring, spring two, which will be March the 22nd. The deadline for an application for that is March the 15th. Uh, it's a certificate, it's a master's, and uh, and it's a, it's an LLM. The certificate, nine credits, the master's, 30. And the LLM, if you've got a JD, uh, is 24 credits. And you can complete those in uh, as little as 12 months, or you can take a little bit longer if uh, if you want to. But it's a, it's a flexible program, and it's meant to meet your career, career needs. Most importantly, however, it has been designed uh, and it is taught by industry professionals. And something that you're gonna find out a little bit more about uh, a little bit later uh, is we have uh, included, and this will be from spring, uh, spring two, uh, a new course in understanding blockchain, 
cryptocurrencies and the law. So if you're in that sort of financial compliance type role uh, with a bank or a financial institution, then this particular qualification is intended to help you really to take the next uh, take the next level in terms of your career. Give us a call 518-390-0261 uh, or graduate admissions at albanylaw.edu. Uh, and now uh, just a short video uh, about our uh, cybersecurity and data privacy program. Hi, I am Dean Anthony Haynes, and I created the Cybersecurity and Data Privacy Program at Albany Law School to help professionals like you advance their career. Law.com reports that data privacy and cybersecurity officers are in high demand with little competition. And IAPP reports that 42% of all cybersecurity and privacy professionals hold a professional degree. Click below to learn more. And we look forward to speaking with you about how Albany Law School will help you advance your career to the next level. I'd just like to say that in real life, Anthony's voice and his mouth movements do actually synchronize. But uh, hey, if you're interested in our, our cybersecurity and, and data uh, privacy program, uh, again, a certificate, a master's, uh, an LLM. Um, uh, Nicole has posted the uh, the contact details into the uh, uh, into the chat box there. Um, so let's introduce the panelists to you. So our first panelist is uh, Josh Garcia. Uh, Josh is a partner at Ketzel, and he's worked closely with developers, funds, exchanges, and investors in the fintech and blockchain space for the past six years. His counsel draws from experience at Tech Forward International law firms Cooley, White & Case, uh, and Goodwin Proctor. Now, as a recognized thought leader, uh, he has been published in Coindesk, Coin Center, the Bitcoin magazine, uh, and he's counseled and presented to the Money Transmitter Regulators Association in New York City, Bar Association, Congressional Hill staffers, Rhode Island state regulators, the Israel Securities Authority, and at various industry uh, events. Uh, his expertise spans legal, financial, and regulatory topics with a focus on securities, commodities, lending, consumer protection, and payment law. And uh, if uh, he's not busy enough already, he also co-teaches a course on blockchain uh, and the law at the University of Michigan Law School. Josh, uh, welcome to you. Next slide. And also, we're delighted to um, introduce you to Debbie Hoffman, who is alumna from uh, 1996. Uh, Debbie's an adjunct professor here at Albany Law School. She is going to be teaching the upcoming graduate program course, Understanding Blockchain, Cryptocurrencies and the Law. Uh, she's the founder and CEO of Symmetry Blockchain Advisors where she focuses on endeavors related to the education strategy and implementation of blockchain solutions. With her experience in financial services, law and technology innovation, Debbie brings a unique perspective to blockchain innovation. Uh, Debbie was previously chief legal officer at Digital Risk and a finance attorney at Thatcher, Profit and Wood in New York. Uh, she served as a professor at Barry Law School, Florida A&M, University College of Law and the University of Central Florida. Debbie, uh, welcome to you and thanks for joining us. Uh, and our next panelist 
Sean, Sean Keith. Sean is founder and managing partner at Straight Up Capital. Uh, while at Colorado Law, Sean was an active member in the Boulder Tech and Venture Capital community. Uh, now, while serving uh, as the executive chair of the transactional division of the law school, uh, Sean and his partner won the National Intellectual Property Transactional Law Mix competition. Uh, he's helped teach in the interdisciplinary telecom program, teaching graduate level engineering classes in telecom business and strategy and telecom policy and regulation. He's founding uh, the founding uh, board of directors on, on the he is a founding member. I think that's what it's meant to say of the board of directors on the diversity and blockchain Philly chapter. Uh, thank you, Sean. Thanks for joining us. Uh, and next slide. Uh, Jimmy Wynn. Jimmy has uh, come and spoken to us uh, before and uh, is always a, a, a welcome speaker. One of the world's leading Bitcoin advocates. Jimmy is the founding president of the Bitcoin Association. Uh, a Switzerland-based global industry organization that works to advance business on the Bitcoin SVG, SV blockchain. Now, Bitcoin SV is the only project dedicated to the original design protocol and the, the Satoshi vision of Bitcoin's pseudonymous uh, creator, Satoshi Nakamoto. Uh, it's, uh, it is massively scaling to be the world's um, one uh, blockchain for global enterprise applications and for BS, BSV to be the world's digital currency. Previously, Jimmy was CEO of Enchain Group, the worldwide leader in advisory research and development of blockchain technologies and was chair of its strategic advisory board. Jimmy, welcome to you. Next slide, we have uh, Daniel Stabile. Dan is a partner in the Miami office of Schutz and Bowen LLP. He's a leading attorney in the distributed ledger and digital asset spaces. He's advised issuers of native tokens, digital currency exchanges, cryptocurrency broker dealers, digital currency ATM businesses, virtual currency mining operations, and cryptocurrency tax reporting businesses. He has also advised banks, brokers, and other institutions such as real estate development companies uh, in regards to their implementation of blockchain, blockchain technology. Daniel is co-author of Digital Assets and Blockchain Technology, US Law and Regulation, a first of its kind legal textbook designed for law and other graduate level students. Daniel, welcome to you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you to all of your panelists. If I could all ask you all to uh, turn on your cameras. There's Jimmy, there's Debbie, Daniel, there's Josh. Not sure where Sean is. Sean's been having a few issues. So, Sean, we will make a start. And as uh, soon as you've been able to sort your things out, then uh, please do, please do join us. So, folks, um, if you can see below there, and here I'm talking to the audience, um, there's a Q&A. And what we would like you to do is to post your questions into that Q&A. We're going to do uh, a couple of things here. We've got some questions that we've uh, we've uh, previously uh, agreed on, and uh, we've also we also want to crowdsource the questions from uh, from you. Um, so my my first question. I think we should always start off by defining our terms. There's a lot of there's a lot of jargon here. Um, I'm sort of going to well. Um, Hello. I, I, yes. Uh, I, I are you the host? host? Uh, can, can you share? Uh, it, it says, says that, that you have turned, turned off the start video. video. Uh, okay, Sean. We can. Uh, oh. There. All right. Are we, are we okay? okay? There we go. Okay. Your sound Perfect. is not great, Sean. So I recommend you go to mute. Um, 
So let's uh, let's start off with that that first question, um, and let's go to Jimmy. Jimmy, I want to start off by defining some terms. What are, what are we talking about when we're discussing things like blockchain, cryptocurrencies, and and Bitcoin? Well, well, first of all, thanks for having me on again. Always a pleasure to talk to your audience. Um, Bitcoin, blockchain, and Digital currencies is the term I prefer instead of cryptocurrencies sound very new to people, but they really combine concepts that have existed for a long time. First, there was an effort to create electronic cash, a way to send value across the internet and through digital means starting in the 1980s and 1990s. There was DigiCash in 1989 and it's something called eGold that launched in 1996. So the idea of an electronic way to more efficiently send monetary value is not new. And blockchains are simply a form of ledger, a record keeping system to record transactions of payments, but as we'll learn today, also data, which can be used to create much more powerful business applications such as smart contracts or tokens of other assets. The difference between a blockchain and a normal ledger is that it's kept not just by one person such as you will or your bank, but by many people such as all of the speakers on this webinar so that no one person controls the ledger and that it is uh, open to verification and confirmation by many participating keepers of the ledger. Um, so Bitcoin emerged in 2008 by the posting of a white paper by Satoshi Nakamoto to introduce itself as another attempt to create electronic cash after the failed attempts in prior years. And it defines itself as a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system. So I should be able to use it to send to Sean anywhere in the world instantly any amount of money. It was designed to be used as electronic cash, meaning in daily life. And the Bitcoin white paper described its goal, which was to create a more efficient way to send internet commerce payments, including for small casual transactions. Because when the internet was created, we have ways to send data, email, websites, do these Zoom videos, but there was not a native way to create payments. Um, and so we had to layer on PayPal, credit card processing, and that requires additional fees and people in the middle. So Bitcoin is designed to create a way where we could all send each other and to merchants and businesses money value instantly for very low fees. And um, that's why it emerged. Uh, after a period of time, Bitcoin did not scale bigger, meaning its capacity to handle large amounts of transactions did not increase. And then people started creating other blockchain and cryptocurrency projects to achieve goals they had hoped to create on the Bitcoin ledger, but were not able to. So we've now moved into a world where there's over 5,000 different cryptocurrencies, many of which have wow. different functions, some to send payments, some to do smart contracts and tokens, and they all operate with some version of maybe not all a blockchain, but some ledger system that records transactions of payments and even data information um, across multiple keepers of the ledger is the best way to understand it. So that's the world we live in today. And that's why we have so many cryptocurrencies or as I prefer to call them digital currencies and why there's even more than one Bitcoin. Uh, we support, as you mentioned, Bitcoin SV, BSV, but there's uh, several other competing versions out there. Thanks, Jimmy. 5,000, 5, I had no idea. And uh, Debbie, can, can you help us with, uh, with defining some of these, some of these terms? 
Sure. So I'm going to take it down even, well, I think uh, Jimmy gave a great overview, but just for those of you that may not even know the um, interplay between the two. So blockchain is the underlying protocol on which all these cryptocurrencies are, currencies are built. And um, one of the key takeaways, if you know nothing else about Bitcoin and blockchain and cryptocurrencies, is that you should be able to, the de definition of the two are different and that Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies or digital currencies are exchange of value using blockchain type protocols. And each one is built, uh, each cryptocurrency, each digital currency is built on a slightly different type of blockchain ledger so that we wanna make sure that you don't walk away and say, well, Bitcoin is, it's, it's basically anonymous. You can't tell necessarily track back who the person is. That's not the way all blockchain ledgers can be built. So each cryptocurrency has its own type of unique um, set of technology features that you can add in or take away from or build customized to the way you want your protocol to work. So that's, that's all I'm gonna say because I think that's just such an important point to understand. Okay, thank you. Um, Daniel. Do you want, we're, we're developing our definitions here. Is there anything you want to add to, to what we've said already? Jimmy and Debbie said it quite nicely and good to be with you and the audience. Well, let me just stress one concept that I think is, is really critical here. And Jimmy touched on it, but I don't want it to be lost in the shuffle. And that is to me, the animating principle behind Bitcoin and all of blockchain technology is the removal of the need for a trusted third party intermediary. So that is right there in the text of Satoshi Nakamoto's famed 2008 white paper, which is really the big bang moment for cryptocurrencies. And one of the keys to unlocking what's going on here with blockchain technology and digital currency is that there were a number of ideological principles that motivated um, the launch of, of Bitcoin and distributed ledger technology. It's not necessarily a coincidence that the white paper was released on Halloween 2008, just around the time of the Lehman Brothers collapse. And this the two coinciding of the onset of the Great Recession and the launch of cryptocurrency um, really allowed some of the ideological motivations for Bitcoin to come into the public consciousness, such as um, there are some early adopters of Bitcoin who were concerned with a central government's ability to play with monetary policy. There were some who were concerned about inflation. There were some that were concerned about privacy and the increasing prominence and too big to fail nature of the global financial institutions. So we've come a long way from 2008 and obviously many of these financial institutions themselves that were sort of in the crosshairs of some of the early adopters themselves have now adopted the technology. But I do think that that is really um, a key piece of understanding blockchain. All right, thanks, Daniel. Um, Josh, are, are we in a, a sort of a Betamax VHS um, state at the moment, to, just, to, just to date myself, in, in terms of all of these competing 
um, cryptocurrencies. Are, are we ever going to come to a position where we have an accepted standard, an accepted form of cryptocurrency, or are we always likely to see these sort of uh, varieties and uh, uh, different cryptocurrencies? You won't need to. Um, so to, to draw that line between the two between any coin and any other coin, because there are people who worried already that uh, we're going to enter into that kind of situation where you know we'll argue that one cryptocurrency is going to be the one that's going to dominate versus another. Um, the, the industry is very iterative, and when it sees a problem, it attacks it with some sort of tech solution. And so it saw this problem, and uh, you've had multiple projects that worked on what's called cross-chain or intracoin protocols so that um, you don't have to worry about whether you're using one, one coin or, or another. Um, you know, the, you know, it's sort of like if Betamax or, or VHS could be played on a single player, right? That, that's kind of what's, what's going on with uh, protocols like Polkadot or Cosmos or, or some of these other protocols out there that are designed to allow for interconnectivity between blockchains. So any problem that you can think of, there's somebody working on an answer for it. And that's the beauty of this space is people are so excited about this original idea of decentralization and disintermediation that they've you know, used these, these, these base levels of code, uh, the Bitcoin blockchain, Ethereum blockchain, other blockchains, what, what is called layer one protocols. Um, you guys might, if you continue to educate yourself on this, you'll see that term used over and over again, layer one. And they've built on those, they've added to um, uh, layer two protocols, which interact with that base layer of code. And those layer two protocols are where you get a lot of really exciting ideas. Um, for instance, like strange things like credit scoring on chain or on-chain lending or um, you know, faster payments because the Bitcoin network is, is a little bit slow. Um, there, there's, a, there's a range of pro projects and products out there that exist today and, and work today that have solved some of these issues. Um, so, so I guarantee you, any, any sort of problem identified, there's two or three teams working on it. All right, thanks, Josh. Sean, uh, come to you. Um, hope your audio is going to hold up. Um, so the, uh, I'll give you one of the questions from the Q and A's, which kind of builds up on uh, what we just mentioned. Is is there potential for a specific cryptocurrency to take over paper money? Okay, can you hear me? I can. Actually, that sounds much better. Good. Okay. Good. I thought so. Um, all right. Well, so I while I spent all that time figuring out my audio, can you run the question by me again? Uh, a specific cryptocurrency? Yeah, so this is one of, uh, this is one of the questions in the Q&A from, uh, from an anonymous attendee. They're saying, is there potential for a specific cryptocurrency to take over paper money? Well, I think um, over a, a long enough timeline, it's inevitable that that will happen. Um, it'll certainly take uh, decades to actually get to that point, but, um, you know, in the same way that we went from um, the, you know, uh, horse and buggy to the automobile, the, we're kind of doing the same thing with digital transactions compared to paper money. Um, so uh, there certainly will be a cryptocurrency or multiple cryptocurrencies. Um, however, um, I think paper money will still be around for uh, at least the foreseeable future. Okay, thanks, Sean. Um, Debbie, I'm going to start with you on uh, on this one. Um, it, it, there's a 
there's a couple of parts to this uh, this question. This was a question that was put on the the LinkedIn page by Miguel Alvarez uh, Adamas. I'm sorry, I probably totally mispronounced that. But um, is is the use of uh, cryptocurrencies legal? How how are they regulated? Who regulates them? How successful is that regulation? Uh, and are there any significant legislative uh, initiatives currently underway? So that gets to the crux of really, really what we want to think about here. I'm just laughing because that's a really loaded question. And it's, um, <laughs> I'll start with a few uh, thoughts about it. And then I'm sure everybody has thoughts on events. So is it legal? It, so it's like everything else. When you ask that question, there's a lot of ands, ifs, or buts. Um, there's laws all over the world that regulate cryptocurrency in different ways. And there's a lot of different, you know, we think, uh, I think a lot about the money transmission laws, because that's kind of the most basic way to think of about it. But there's all kinds of other laws that come into play, like you know, um, uh, securities laws, taxation laws. I mean, you can think about it from every different, if you were to go through every different aspect of laws, there's different ways that they can be applied. So we don't necessarily have a wide variety of guidance yet in the US, we have some. Um, other country, countries around the world are leading in some of their guidance. Some is not really that much of it is lawmaking per se is regulatory um, oversight or enforcement actions that we learn from. Um, there's also not a lot of uh, precedential case law, either common law. So um, is the use of cryptocurrency legal? And it depends on the use and how you're using it and um, what, you know, so yeah, there are legal ways to use it, but there are also unlegal ways to use it. So yes, it's legal per se. Um, how is it regulated? I just talked about that. Um, and then how successful is the regulation? Well, that, that I think that um, you, you, there's, there's pros and cons to that. So there's this question a lot of us, a lot of attorneys talk about as to how much is overregulation versus how much guidance do we need? So we absolutely need some guidance. And so is the regulation successful to some degree? Yes, but there's also times that we see the regulatory bodies moving in a way that um, the lawyers who are in this area get concerned about because it might be over-regulation to the extent that we aren't able to grow or there's something that they're not necessarily seeing or we don't even see it yet because we don't know of all the use cases in the world. So I always talk about the fact that this is an incredible area to be a lawyer in because we don't have all the answers. And so we're learning along with the regulators because the innovation is happening simultaneously as the regulation is happening. So that's kind of my overall global answer. And I'm sure that everybody else is, is chomping at the bit to give their, their two cents on this as well. Sure, yeah. I, I'm, I'm going to pick on the attorneys. Yeah, I, I, I know Sean and Jimmy are both JDs, but I'm going to pick on the attorneys first. Um, Daniel, um, so the issue of, of regulation is is it legal? What what are the what are the emerging regulatory issues that that, that we're seeing and being dealt with? Well, as usual, Debbie put it um, clearly. Um, let let me see if I can add uh, a little bit to that. So absolutely, in the United States, will no one is going to um, put you in jail for buying your cup of coffee with Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency? You're safe, my friend. Um, however, as Debbie said, certain uses of cryptocurrency is illegal. You can't use it to extort people, for example. You can't use it for, to um, obtain a ransom. Um, but I think uh, more importantly for purposes of this discussion is that different businesses that deal with 
cryptocurrencies are regulated in different ways, depending on what they're doing. So a lot of types of virtual currency businesses, let's say a Bitcoin ATM company, these are popping up all over the world. You go to your gas station, you put in dollars and you get um, Bitcoin sent to your wallet. They're regulated um, on a state level um, and also on a federal level. So as money transmitters, as, as Debbie suggested. Um, there's also a lot of cryptocurrency, digital asset businesses that are essentially acting as securities broker dealers. So the SEC comes involved. There are some businesses that are dealing with cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin that have been deemed commodities. So we have a federal regulator in the United States called the CFTC. So we could spend many hours talking about this, but big picture is in the United States, there's federal regulation and there's state regulation. And there's a myriad of federal regulators that get involved. And there are regulations of one kind or another in virtually every um, US state or territory. The final thing that I'll say is, I think the overarching trend is there's a recognition by the regulators that we've passed a tipping point and blockchain technology in one form or another is here to stay. So you see major regulators like the OCC, one of our very important banking regulators in the United States, saying that financial institutions can take custody of crypto assets. You have the Department of Justice, our main federal criminal um, law enforcement body, um, offering a lot of guidance and explanation of how it will apply some of the existing laws and regulations to the new technology. So virtually every regulator in the United States and the world now is confronting these issues. And the regulation is frankly in a very messy state um, in the United States, certainly, but gradually we're starting to see more clarity. All right, thanks, uh, thanks Daniel. Um, Josh, just to um, um, build on what, uh, what Daniel said there, he said we've reached a, a tipping point. So um, you know, where, where are we in terms of the, the regulatory impact of this? Yeah, I think the, the question is maybe answered best by providing some of the, like the human element here, right? So I want you all to think about just how many people are involved and, and work at all these regulators and how there's there's six people or five people who are, who are in the space who are on this panel now who know quite a bit, but none of us really know everything. I've been in this industry seven years and it's extremely difficult to keep up with the technology as it changes and regulators work 40 hour weeks, right? At the federal government at the state level, they don't have a tremendous amount of time to commit to um, the study of blockchain technology. And so think of all the regulators that Daniel just mentioned, like the, the, the SEC, the CFTC, OCC, IRS, the DOJ, FBI, at the state level, all the banking and lending regulators. Like those folks, there's a lot of people uh, who work at these places. And, and two years ago, I, I gave a presentation um, to the NMLS, which is a um, state, you know, essentially state banking regulators, state money transmitter regulators. They have a conference every year. And I was presenting on DEXs, on decentralized exchanges, and, um, and a little bit on how, like, these, on how centralized exchanges work. And for some of them, it was the first time getting kind of like an in-depth dive into 
that technology, which at that point had already been around for two years. And so two years from now, state regulators might get someone teaching them about uh, NFTs or you know what's happening with DeFi lending and DeFi protocols, right? Um, and, and even then, it's gonna be their first time hearing it and there's gonna be so many of them, there's gonna be so much confusion and it's just gonna take time for that knowledge to accumulate to a point where you have sensible regulation, sensible enforcement that comes out. There's just gonna be a lot of confusion at the state level for, for years, um, just because of the human element, just because it takes time to learn about this stuff and it takes time to get educated. So I just wanna point, point that part out. I think for, for that reason, I wouldn't say we're at a tipping point. There's just this like rolling, like snowballing kind of effect. And at some point the snowball is gonna be so big that it's gonna be undeniable and state regulators will have to um, address it. And, some, and maybe there will be a push for some sort of like uh, consistency across state laws, which is, which is what some people are talking about, um, at least at uh, CSBS, which is the Conference for State Bank Supervisors. Um, so, so there, but it's not quite there yet. I think it's still snowballing um, is, is what I would say. Okay, thank you. Um, I want to go to some of the, the, the Q&As um, that we've got here, and uh, I'll bring these to, to Jimmy first and then to, to Sean. Um, Philip Hackey says, I'd like the panel to address their perspectives regarding Janet Yellen, um, US, uh, US Secretary of the Treasury, uh, her comments on Monday that Bitcoin is an extremely inefficient way to conduct uh, monetary transactions, specifically in line of legitimacy and stability aspects. What aspects of the current environment is likely to be strengthened or regulated to improve both respects? Um, well, I absolutely agree with Janet Yellen and saying that Bitcoin is an extremely inefficient way to process transactions if she's referring to BTC, which is the dominant ticker symbol for Bitcoin that people see in the news, it's the one that's risen up to 40, 50,000 US dollars worth of value. It's inefficient because as I mentioned earlier, the Bitcoin protocol developers that took control of that network chose not to scale the network. So it only does on chain seven transactions a second at maximum speed, which is very small compared to the Visa network, which does 2000 transactions a second on average and 56 to 60,000 transactions a second at peak period. So our view of it is that if Bitcoin was designed to be, as I stated at the beginning, an efficient electronic cash system to be able to send small transactions anywhere in the world, that's not what happened on BTC. And that's why we had this proliferation of many other attempted digital currencies. Because they kept the transaction capacity small, the transaction fee on BTC is high. I checked yesterday, it was 20 US dollars to send a single BTC transaction. That's because the capacity of the network is very small and it could be hours, if not more, to get a transaction confirmed onto the network. That's why we formed the mission to have Bitcoin SV to scale the network so that we could have a more efficient way of transacting. On our network last year, the median transaction fee was one one hundredth of a US cent. I could send anywhere, anyone in the world, any amount of value for one one hundredth of a US cent. That's a much more efficient system. BTC in the form of Bitcoin has not become one. And that's why we've seen this proliferation, which has really caused confusion, you know, um, you know, for people trying to understand digital currency. So the, the key, honestly, is scaling. BTC has um, expressed a narrative now of being a digital gold 
a store of value for people to invest. That's why it's the price has gone up because these big companies like MicroStrategy and Square have bought up large amounts of coins. You hear about in the news, Elon Musk with Tesla did it, right? Um, for the express purpose of holding it for storage value, not to actually use in daily life. And they, we think that's completely the opposite of what Bitcoin was created to be. So I agree with Janet Yellen with that in terms of how it applies to BTC. It's what we're trying to change with BSV. It's also why we have all these so many other digital currencies that have emerged trying to solve this problem of creating some efficient payment mechanism or creating other ways to efficiently send tokens. So scaling ultimately is the big challenge for all of these blockchains. Ethereum, the dominant blockchain for the last few years for smart contracts and tokens is running into the same issue. Their gas fees, which is their equivalent of transaction fees are also hitting really, really high amounts, 30, 40 US dollars to send a transaction. And so if you create a tokenized market, let's say where you tokenize stock or art or financial instruments and wanna do a lot of trading on it, it doesn't work if it costs $40 to send a fee, a transaction every time for trading. So the answer honestly is scaling a blockchain so that businesses, including the clients of the people watching this webinar can efficiently use a blockchain for a wide range of payment, token, smart contract and data transactions of all types for all industries. So scaling really is the answer. Thanks, Jimmy. Um, again, to, to you, Sean, what, what are your comments in terms of Janet, Janet Yellen's uh, comments on Monday that Bitcoin's an extremely inefficient way to conduct monetary transactions. Yeah, you're muted, Sean. Sean, you're muted. I think that Bitcoin is sort of the uh, on-ramp for individuals um, and businesses to digital transactions. And while it is definitely inefficient, um, let's be honest, paper cash is also inefficient for transactions. Um, so if you think about it in the context of sending a letter versus sending an email, clearly a digital transaction is better. Um, however, um, like the many points that um, Jimmy just mentioned the, the blockchain network, uh, the Bitcoin network is pretty inefficient right now, but we are going to see, as I was talking about sort of that on-ramp or on-board of sort of uh, the technology is going to catch up to, um, or is going to grow and accelerate at a pace that we're really just in the nascency of the technology of blockchain. Um, so while it is currently inefficient, um, it is getting more efficient and I think will continue to um, only become uh, a, a, a hairier beast over time. All right. Thanks, Sean. Um, Chester asks a very long question. I'm, I'm just going to cut it down to the, the, the final sentence. Um, do you think blockchain could help electronic bills of lading replacing paper bills of, uh, of lading? Uh, anybody want to take this one, Debbie? Sure, I actually just, uh, I, I've uh, guest spoken in a, a admiralty and law class. And so we were talking exactly about this point and there's no question. I mean, it's elect, there's, it's um, blockchain and electronic currency go hand in hand and that they can transmit data and payment at the same time. And uh, that's one of their great, that's one of the greatest efficiencies of this pro of this whole um, uh, technology and protocol. So it can replace bills of lading that I think that it goes like 
like anything else in any change in any industry, it's been a standard for many, many years. And there are companies out there that are um, experimenting with this and shipping for sure. But um, I think it's a, a custom thing more than anything else is there has to be some um, change. And there's also some UCC uh, matters that you have to go through and analyze and make sure that it it um, meets all those requirements. And so I think if you go through those, um, you can see that it meets it, but I do think that there's a um, an industry change that would have to be accepting of that. But can it do it? Yes. It, will the industry accept it? That's a whole other point, so yeah. Hey, yeah but you want that point quickly? Sorry, you're, yeah, go ahead, Jimmy. Uh, uh, bill of lading and any type of supply chain management or any type of business record and documentation is a perfect use case for blockchain technology because all a blockchain is is a way to keep records as well as Debbie said to transmit payments along with records that is shared so that um, you don't have to trust one person. I don't have to trust Daniel or his company to keep the records and access them only when he allows me to do so. If all of the world could access the same record keeping system in real time at the same time, and we could have trust to what we would call a universal source of truth. Everyone sees the records of a product moving across the supply chain from port to port, from manufacturer to wholesaler to distributor, and bills of lading, um, invoices could be processed in a way that we can all see in real time where it's happening and payments are made quickly through digital wallets. It would make our uh, system so much more efficient because we would cut down on the need for all these middle companies, middlemen and women to have to process paper in order to move along the shipment of goods as well as the payment for them. It could be all much more automated as well as having information trusted in real time because we're all looking at a, the same ledger that we can all agree is an accurate representation of the truth. All right, thanks, Jimmy. Um, next question I've got, I'd like to sort of move reasonably quickly through the rest of them. Albeit there are 107 of these questions now and, and with 20 minutes to go, realistically, we're not going to. But um, so Rich Levine is asking if I'm a US taxpayer, I buy Bitcoin and then use it to buy something else. Do I have a gain or loss for tax purposes? Who would like to pick that one up? Daniel? Well, let me start with two caveats, Will. Um, first, I'm not a tax lawyer and second I can't give understood <laughs> legal advice in this context but as a as a general matter yes um, the IRS in the United States regards um, Bitcoin and many types of cryptocurrencies as property which is interesting because other regulators have taken um, a different approach but for purposes of the US Internal Revenue Service um, many cryptocurrencies are property. And as a consequence of that, you're required to pay short-term or long-term capital gains. Um, and your basis is essentially um, the US dollar value equivalent of the Bitcoin when you received it. And then your gain or loss is the value um, in US dollars at the time that it's spent. All right, thanks, Daniel. Um, I'm gonna take, Tim's question, um, just Tim, nothing else. Um, he is asking a, a question that, that a number of people have raised. And one of the things that, that I, I wanted to make sure that we looked at, um, Josh, the, the issue of, of, of privacy, 
Um, one of the accusations leveled at cryptocurrencies is that they can be used for uh, money laundering because they're, they're, they're anonymous and, uh, and uh, you know, various, various other accusations like that. What, 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 are, the, what are the legal issues around, uh, around privacy and data privacy? So there, there's two questions there, I think, is sort of the, the AML, anti-money laundering laws and how they fit in crypto um, and how data, data privacy and security laws touch on crypto. On the first question, um, you know, if you're, if, you're, if you're a company that's handling somebody else's money, then you're in the world where you have to abide by um, anti-money laundering laws. You have to know who your customers, who you're dealing with. And there's a whole set of reporting and record keeping requirements that fall upon you. Whether or not that money is in the form of a fiat um, and in many states uh, in crypto, not, not every state. Um, on the other hand, there are these questions of data privacy. So there, there's a bit of a, of a complicated kind of a nuance to what we're talking about when we talk about uh, anonymity in cryptocurrency or blockchain technology. It's not really anonymous, um, it's pseudonymous, which means um, it's sort of like if someone sees your, your bank account statement and your name is scratched out, but your bank account number is there, you know, we know the bank knows that your bank account number is tied to your name. So the, the number is, it's, it's, it's a pseudonym for your account, right? It's the same thing here. If, if, you, if you're able to peg my name or, or my bank information to my uh, network address on any network that I, that I deal in, Bitcoin, Ethereum, whatever, then you'll be able to identify who's behind those transactions. You'll know it's me, assuming that I'm the only person with a private key to that network address. And so, um, and so the question, one question that's kind of crucial that arises under, um, not so much under, under US law, but more under like European data protection laws and, and maybe Brazilian law um, is when does a pseudonymous uh, um, a kind of a string of numbers and letters become personally identifiable information or, or uh, information that's so important that it should be protected under those laws. Uh, so that if you're a company that stores that information, you have to abide by certain protocols. That's a bit of an open question. Um, if, if that's a bit of an open question and, what, and whether hashes of that data, uh, whether those hashes are considered protected information is, is confusing. And, and these aren't questions I, I address directly because I'm not a data privacy person and I'm not, a European, I'm not an EU lawyer. But they've come across my desk and I had to identify them and say, oh, these are the people you need to talk to. And, you know, there, there are certainly shops that focus on those. Um, but that's where, where kind of the, the threshold questions are. It's like, if I'm a company and I come into possession of the fact that this person is tied to this address or, or I just come into the, the, the string of numbers and letters, what do I have to do with that data? What kind of protections fall upon it? Um, and on the, on the privacy, data privacy side, there's California, law, the CCPA, which is a relatively new law. There's a GDPR in, in the EU, uh, other laws around the world that might affect your, what you have to do and the rights of the consumers that are subject to the data. And then on the other side of things, there's KYC and anti-money laundering obligations that fall upon you if you're holding someone else's money, essentially. Okay. 
Thanks, Josh. Um, I'm just going to come to J Jimmy for your take on, on this issue of, uh, of privacy then. Debbie and Sean, I'd, I'd like to talk about perhaps the, 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 um, the, the jobs in, in um, legal jobs, particularly in terms of, uh, of Bitcoin and, and blockchain. Uh, well, Josh is correct that um, digital currency transactions are not anonymous. That's a big misconception out there. They are pseudonymous, as he pointed out. It's like the pulling of an IP address, right, where you're accessing, um, you know, the internet from uh, uh, versus which can be tied ultimately to you with the right type of investigation. So there is some level of identification um, that can link a digital currency wallet address to you. And as he explained, um, the companies that operate the space in exchange, a company that is processing the payments of digital currencies are now under much more pressure to collect information about you as a customer so that they would have privacy obligations with respect to the information they collect. I want to address a different privacy issue, which is use of blockchain to record personal information to the chain or what's called hash information uh, or record a hash of the data to the chain. Um, that's something that's being explored a lot on our blockchain because we're scaling so big, we can handle so much more data capacity and other chains are doing this. For example, there's a company in the US in our ecosystem building an electronic health records platform on the Bitcoin SV blockchain to give you as a patient more control of your own data, because in the US our healthcare data is spread across all of our different providers, to consolidate it in one place and allow you to actually be able to make small amounts of Bitcoin SV micropayments by uh, allow, allowing companies, let's say a pharmaceutical company who wants to get some data for research to access your data and they'll actually pay you to access it. So it's giving more power to you as a consumer. So that's a great new potential use of blockchain technology and digital currency payments, but it raises a privacy issue which lawyers will have to deal with. And if I was still practicing law, I'm sure I'd be confronting this, which is how do you best manage the protection of the privacy of personal information or other confidential information that might get recorded to, or if not on the blockchain itself, accessed through blockchain um, lock and unlock controls. Um, you're gonna see that I believe as a big issue for privacy and data security lawyers in the years to come, because one of the powers of blockchain technology is to make data more accessible to the world where everyone can access your healthcare records or whatever your ID information uh, from the same source. Cause we predict a day where your ID information will be managed from a single place on the blockchain. And therefore you don't have to have separate Facebook login, Google login, where if you stored all your ID information in one place, anytime you needed to authorize an application to access it, it could all be accessed from the same place. Great for efficiency. For the privacy lawyers out there, they're probably thinking, hmm, how am I going to ensure that this meets GDPR requirements, as well as the requirements in the United States and other countries. So that, that's an important privacy issue to consider as more personal and confidential information gets either recorded directly on a blockchain or the ability to access it happens through a blockchain. Thanks, Jimmy. I do recall you previously told us you were you were a recovering attorney. So um, thanks, thanks for that, um, Debbie. Yeah, the, the question I, I promised you. Uh, the um, Andres Castillo uh, asks us um, uh, a one L uh, was wondering how uh, how to get into the crypto sphere of law while working for a big law firm. Is it possible? Would uh, would they have to work for a venture? capital firm, uh, a venture startup first, for, for example. Um, and and uh, on that wider question, you know, what are what are the roles going to be for attorneys in uh, in the future? 
So um, as you've seen, thank you for that question, Andrea, Andrea or Andreas. Um, as you've all seen, uh, one, of, one of my favorite, favorite in a very dark kind of way professors at Albany Law School, my contracts professor, some of you may recall this if you were there years ago when I was, is he would say, <clears throat> there are no questions. There are no answers. Sorry, I got it wrong. There are no answers, only more questions. And so I think that um, the interesting thing about going into this area of law are there are no answers. And so there's so many opportunities as a lawyer to grow and to um, help find the answers. And so if you're in big law, absolutely there's opportunities. A lot of law firms, if I'm always looking at all the different law firms every day that are coming out with either technology groups or blockchain groups, or you know, they're really looking for that expertise. Who knows that? And if you're a if you're a junior level associate and you can show that value to the firm that wants to differentiate themselves, um, then that's a tremendous opportunity. That makes you very um, useful and helpful and um, to, that, uh, valuable to the, to the law firm. And then there's other opportunities as well too. Um, so if you wanna help change the law, make the law, you can go into government and become, you know, there, um, I've known people that have gone into um, the, whether it's a state or a uh, more of a federal regulator to help determine what are the needs. And then there's, um, whole host of opportunities within, uh, we can all talk about this, within either the technology sector or the financial sector to, if you're versed in um, what the legal implications are uh, here. And so I think that you can't, you, you might learn how to quarterback some of these issues. No one of us really knows how to answer all of these issues. I think a few, uh, we've all, I heard Josh say that loud and clear, um, and all of us said, said that pretty loud is that we don't all know all the answers, um, but if you, if you quarterback and you know enough of the, just like you're learning in law school to issue, identify issues and to know, hey, I can go to that tax lawyer and work with him and collaborate with him to figure out some of these answers or that securities lawyer or that um, property lawyer because of the, you know, or, you know, you have to know who are the people around you to help formulate the ideas and be able to identify them. Then there's tremendous opportunity to, again, in all of these areas, whether in-house, whether at a firm, whether in government, whether in venture, venture capital. Well, that professor was was definitely right, Debbie, because we've got 116 questions now. There are only questions. Um, Sean, I mean, you're a recent JD. You've recently come come through that. How, what would if you were advising Andres? How how do you get into crypto? Is it through big law, or or is it uh, through a different pathway? Yeah, you muted again. I think the answer is that big law is kind of going to have to come back to crypto um, and that we, what, what my experience has been so far is that um, law firms are not prepared to handle cryptocurrencies um, and financial firms really aren't either. Um, sort of what's so powerful about blockchain and cryptocurrencies is that it was really uh, organically built um, through the internet and um, it's this new technology that um, is really disrupting incumbent industries um, and um, I think it's sort of um, when you're at in any um, new technology it's hard to um, when you're at the forefront of new technologies, it's hard to 
um, have the law be keep up with the technology. So I think um, if you're interested in getting um, working with cryptocurrencies, you probably would be. Um, well, I guess it depends what your uh, level of risk is, whether you want to work at a startup or whether you want to be a regulator, um, but there's uh, tons of opportunities. Um, however, I think um, big law is not there yet. Okay, thanks, Sean. Josh, yeah. Yeah, there's a bit of a, a dilemma because even if you're at a boutique, if you're, I run a boutique firm and we, we want to have if we're hiring, we're not hiring right now, we're looking at folks who have big law backgrounds, right? And so it ends up like, it, it's hard to justify hiring someone who doesn't have that background because, you know, you kind of don't know what you're getting in some respects, um, especially when you're small and it's harder to take risks. Um, but what helps is seeing your writing, right? So if you're trying to break into the industry, what I tell every junior lawyer or even law student is just write stuff and publish it, if you can't publish it on, if you can't get Coindesk or Block or whoever to um, publish your work, then to put it on Medium and tweet about it. And this way you have a record of like, your thoughts on all the crazy stuff that's happening in the industry. Um, and and don't, if you work at a law firm, don't ask permission to do it, um, just do it. Because uh, that's what I did and it really helped. Um, get, be creative, like get someone to get you a clubhouse invite. Uh, I have seven, if you want to, you know, DM me to kind of like, get one at, and 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 use that to start rooms and invite people who you want to you want to speak to like become someone who's, who's doing something on on clubhouse and hosting these these rooms on creative crypto discussions like just just make it up as you go along and just over time what will happen is you'll have forced your way into the space and people will come to you because they'll, they'll, they'll see you as someone who thinks and writes well and who is good at community building um and it's not something lawyers typically do but if you want to have a career path in it, I mean, that's, that's one way to go about it, right? The other way is to go to big law and like beg partners to put you on projects and work on those projects and then, you know, move out to, to a boutique shop maybe, which is perfectly, you know, perfectly reasonable as well. But um, there, there are just so many paths to the industry that um, it, it, you can go in-house at Coinbase, right? Like you can go in-house at one of these firms that's really growing like BlockFi. Um, there, there's just so many different pathways that it's an open question, I think. Thanks, Josh. Um, I'm just going to have one, two, uh, two, two final questions. Uh, I want to put this, this, this next one just to, to, to Jimmy because it's come up a, a few times. It's just the issue of volatility. Um, how does how does crypto solve that? This is this is a question from James Dodd, and a number of others have asked it. How does it solve the volatility issue of its valuation? At what stabilization rate would would full adoption be possible? Uh, the answer is to focus on building real value based on real utility of the digital currency and asset, as opposed to what I'll be frank to say is today's digital currency cryptocurrency value is completely speculative. For anyone who thinks otherwise, they're completely wrong. I can't tell you why today BTC is worth $50,000 versus $10,000, or why Ethereum is worth $2,000 versus $200. It's not based on actual utility, it's based upon investors' belief in what the potential of it will be, because neither of those blockchains or digital currencies are used anywhere at the scale and for useful functions that would give rise to the value. 
So that's why we're focusing with Bitcoin SV on scaling a blockchain really big so we can handle huge volumes of transactions at a higher velocity for more payment and data transactions so that the value of the coin actually is based on real utility. We view what Bitcoin is as a, a data, as the most valuable commodity of the digital era. And if it becomes useful for both payments efficiently, as well as all these blockchain data uses we talked about, such as BDI or healthcare data or supply chain management, the more it's used for real useful business function, the more real value will it have and its volatility should decrease because it will have, be based on utility. So that's really the answer. I can't tell you where there's the magic number at where the volatility seems right or not, right? But that's why you see these wild swings because the actual value of digital currencies today is not really tied to inherent value. That's what we're trying to fix. And that's what I would encourage everyone across the entire digital e currency and blockchain ecosystem to focus on. And that's what we're doing with Satoshi Vision, Bitcoin SV. Thanks, uh, Jimmy. So final question to all of you, just to, if I could get a, a, a quick answer from, from each of you. What, um, what is the key trend that non-lawyers and lawyers should be looking at? What, what's what's going to be the, the, the big change that you see coming down the pipe in this field? Debbie, do you want to go first for that one? I just think continued innovative uses. I mean, every day, those of, those of us that, that are in the field, we see it and we are just like, wow, who would, you know, the, who would have thought of that? So innovative use cases using blog, the technology. Thanks, Debbie. Josh? Yeah, it's, it's kind of impossible to predict, um, but certainly in the near term, NFTs are going to be big deals. Celebrities are going to be kind of like tied to the whole NFT space and it's going to affect um, the whole Ethereum ecosystem, I think. Um, decentralized exchanges specifically for NFTs are probably going to emerge more. There's only a few now, but there will be more. Um, and the legal issues around those are going to be pretty fascinating, I think. Thanks, Josh. Daniel? Yeah, on that score, decentralized finance generally, removing financial institutions as an intermediary um, from financial transactions. Thanks, Daniel. Sure. Uh, so I would uh, echo the point of decentralization that I really think that um, what we're seeing right now is the power of the internet um, and it's fully globalizing and what uh, cryptocurrencies and what blockchain is able to do is really be at the forefront of the internet of the, you know this 2.0, the next generation of the internet. Thanks, Sean. And Jimmy? All of those trends that have been identified, I think are good and key, and they can all be encapsulated in one message that I think the audience should open their minds to, that all blockchain and digital currency technology is, is igniting the power of data. A blockchain protocol and digital currency network is just a distributed way of sending data. The Bitcoin protocol is a data network protocol, just like IP protocol was created to power the internet. So all of these uses we're talking about take advantage of the ability to send, record, access, retrieve, compute with, manage data that is kept not just by one company or person, but can be confirmed and viewed and accessed publicly from anyone across the world because it's kept by many people. Once you open your mind to the fact that all we're talking about is a more powerful way to have a data network that's distributed as opposed to kept in one place, you can open your minds to all of the great potential of blockchain and all forms of digital currencies.
Thanks, uh, Jimmy. And, and before I before I sign off, um, Debbie, um, can we have your 30 second pitch for the new course that you are going to be launching in spring one as part of Albany Law's online graduate program in financial compliance and risk management? Absolutely. So it's blockchain, understanding blockchain, cryptocurrencies and the law. It's really um, it's in, an intro course, but you'll have the opportunity to go as, as slow or fast as you want to go. Um, I'll give a plug in that I've gotten um, some bits and pieces from all of our speakers here on giving me ideas on um, using a, a textbook that was written by uh, one of our speakers, uh, Dan here. And, uh, and Dan teaches at U Miami. I teach and Josh teaches at U Michigan, the same course. And so um, you'll learn a lot, federal law, state law, use cases, and uh, um, smart contracts, and uh, you'll really get an appreciation for it. Debbie Hoffman, thank you very much. Sean Wynn, thank you very much. Sean Keith, Dan Stabile, and uh, Josh Garcia, uh, thank you to all of you. You've been a fantastic um, uh, panel. Uh, I'm sorry to the folks who asked questions. We, we, we had 121 questions in the end there. Um, and that I think that is indicative of, of the interest that there is in this topic. We we should perhaps have gone far longer than, uh, than an hour. Uh, what I may do is a sort of digest of some of those questions. And, uh, and if, uh, if some of you would be gracious enough to answer them, that would, uh, that would be much, uh, much appreciated. Um, but other than that, folks, thanks very much for coming today. Hope you enjoyed what you saw. Don't forget, 17th of March, we will have a, uh, a cybersecurity panel in terms of looking at the, the, the future um, uh, pathways to the future, emerging trends in cybersecurity and data privacy law and policy. Uh, you can't forget it, it's on St. Patrick's Day. Uh, time is one o'clock till two o'clock. Folks, thanks for coming today. Enjoy the rest of your day. <laughs>